Hey, good morning. Good morning. Oh, it is a good morning. <laughs> hey, if you're a visitor here this morning, we just want to welcome you. We pray that uh, you are encouraged. Uh, I met a young lady this morning that uh, I'm not sure if she was being honest with me. She told me that she was Aaron Hall's mother, but she looks like Aaron Hall's sister. And so uh, I, I introduced myself to her. She said, well, I listen to you. And I thought, oh, you poor sister, you. But, uh, hey, listen, uh, before we even get started, we're going to finish up this story. Uh, we're making a, uh, we're circling back around to Bethany, okay? Uh, we're going to kind of pick up where we left off last week. And uh, this story is going to kind of uh, uh, come full circle. Anita, how are you doing, young lady? Good to see you. And my weightlifting brother. Hey, what's going on, man? All right. Uh, happy Easter. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, squirrel, right? Yeah, it's, that's Trent, right? Okay, let me try to rein this back in. Let me rein this back in. Uh, we're going to come full circle uh, with the, the messages that we've been looking at just for the last couple of weeks. And then we're going to jump back into Exodus, right? And we're going to finish out the book of Exodus for that study. But uh, uh, over the last couple of days, we've had numerous services. We've had, we had a service uh, Thursday night, uh, uh, a Monday Thursday service, a foot washing service. Um, and, and part of the service, uh, we showed uh, a few minutes uh, from the Passion of the Christ. Most of you have seen that, right? Most of us have seen that. And uh, pretty, pretty graphic. Friday night, uh, we had a, a service geared towards our youth. And they too showed certain portions of that movie uh, to just try to illustrate uh, what was taking place during that time and whatnot. But one of the things, whenever you watch that and, and you read about it, one of the things we have a tendency to kind of slip into, or at least our mindset, is that Jesus was some type of a victim in that situation. Now, we know that not to be true, right? As a matter of fact, John chapter 10, verses eight, verse 18, Jesus says this. Right? No one takes it from me, speaking of his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Literally, he, he was saying, I'm the one calling the shots here. Don't look at me as though I'm some uh, 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 sympathetic, suffering victim of this. I have placed my here, myself here uh, out of my own choice because of my love for you, right? Uh, my friend Carl Bowers, we were talking about that yesterday, and he turned me on to a book called Rescued. And in the book called Rescued, uh, the author of the book, a, a friar named John Ricardo, uh, uh, presented this concept of Jesus, and he said it's unlike what most people perceive Jesus to be. He said, as a matter of fact, Jesus was an ambush predator, on the cross. And, and he goes on and he says, this is ex exactly what Jesus was doing. He cloaks his divinity, for you see the devil is not an idiot. He's evil, but he's not an idiot. He is a creature, a mighty creature, but he knows that if he goes head to head with God, he will lose. So what was Jesus up to? Why is he letting himself be tortured and killed? He is in fact, and I would add this, the apex ambush predator. He's fighting a strategic war to set you and I free. He is getting the devil exactly where he wants him so he can pounce on the enemy. The reality is there are victims at the cross, but it wasn't Jesus. The victims at the cross were sin, were death, and the enemy. Amen? 
and, and Jesus in, in his beautiful uh, 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 love and expression drew the adversaries in to the foot of the cross and in that moment destroyed the efforts of the enemy to destroy God's creation. Hence, Jesus says, as the ambush apex predator, it is finished. Amen? I want you guys to understand that at no point or juncture in that process was Jesus the victim. Amen? He set himself there, and he set himself there for you and for me. Amen? Amen. Okay, now we're going to get into the Scripture. Right? Right? And so where we're at today is John chapter 12. And if you would turn, if you, if you don't have your Bibles with me, or you don't have a laptop, a phone, whatever you're using, you can follow along on the monitors. And uh, so we're going to be turning to John chapter 12, 11 verses. Not a lot, not a lot. Doesn't mean that's not the, you know, the same as short sermon, but not a lot of scripture. And John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, we'll read this. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he, had used, uh, he used to help himself to what was put into the money bag. And Jesus responds to his objection. And Jesus says this, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. As well as what? As well as killing Jesus. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Let's, let's pray this morning. Father, in Jesus' name, we just take you in, Lord, this morning. We take in the truth of your word. We take in the worship of your people, the presence, Lord, that, that, that just accompanies uh, the worship of, of your goodness, Lord. Your, your word says that you would inhabit the praise of your people, and you've been faithful to do that this morning, Lord, and we sense your presence and your good, the sweetness of your spirit. Oh, God, rest on us today. I pray, Father, that we would rightfully divide the word this morning, that we would open this thing up, Lord, and, and we would be able to glean from things maybe we haven't uh, understood or maybe things we, we haven't uh, uh, consumed or allowed to consume us, Father. Today, we want to open this word, and we want to be changed. We want to be changed on Easter it's in the name of Jesus we pray and we 
as these things. And the sons and daughters of God said, Amen. Amen. All right, all right. John chapter 12, verse 1. Pull that up, Clark. John chapter 12, verse 1. This is what the scripture says. Now, most of us are very familiar with the story of Lazarus. Let me just say that. If, if you're not, uh, it's, it's in, found in the a book of John chapter 11. We've been through that the last two weeks. Uh, the, what, what happens in chapter 11 basically is word is brought to Jesus. And they basically tell Jesus, right, hey, the one that you love is sick. Jesus doesn't arrive in Bethany until uh, uh, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. He raises Lazarus from the grave after having some interactions with Martha first and then Mary second. And after he has these interactions, he does what is, is deemed to be the impossible and he elevates a man from, literally from the grave uh, and restores life to him. And, it, and it's an incredible, incredible thing. And that takes place in Bethany, which is basically about, uh, roughly two miles, just under two miles southeast of Jerusalem. That's what's taking place. And so when we open up the scripture in chapter 12, the scripture says that six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where this had taken place, right? Where, G, where Lazarus lived whom Jesus had raised from, uh, raised from the dead. It says that he came from Bethany. The question right off, right off the top of my head is, well, where did he come from? When we were reading in chapter 11, he was in Bethany. So where did he come from? And I want to explain to you where he came from. And it's going to give you a, a sense of context of, 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 of the atmosphere that was taking place uh, in this given moment. It was a very hostile atmosphere. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 11, verse 45 and 47 says this, while Jesus is still in Bethany, therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Understandably so, right? You just watched a man, you know, who'd been dead for four days, Jack, rise from the grave. Man, that, that's a hard position of denial, right? It says, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Some people didn't believe. Some people didn't believe in the authenticity of what Jesus did, or at least the origin or the source by which he performed such a miracle. It's unbelievable to me that people would witness such a thing and yet, from two different perspectives, have two different decisions made. One to believe and one to reject. With the same evidence laying at the feet of both parties. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. You know what the meeting was about? It was about to kill Jesus. That's what the meeting was about. So now we're going to find out where Jesus went. Therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim where he stayed with his disciples. Now Ephraim is about 20 miles roughly northeast Right? Northeast of Jerusalem. So basically, when we consider that, that Bethany is roughly two miles, what, southeast, and Ephraim is 20 miles northeast, now the journey from Ephraim to 
uh, Bethany would then be roughly 22 miles, right? We're, we're all tracking with that, right? Our math is pretty solid this morning. It's just basic addition, subtraction. That's, that's about all I can do. But it's enough for this morning. The incredible thing about this is that Jesus is actually headed. His intention, his motivation is to find himself entering into Jerusalem, right? We understand this. And the reason that he's entering into Jerusalem is for you and me because he's going to lay his life down in Jerusalem, right? That's his, that's his entire intention. That's the mission that God had called him to. That's, that's, that was the whole purpose of his life. And in this moment, what Jesus decides to do, because we know in John chapter 11 that he loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. He loved them. He decides upon coming back towards Jerusalem, though that be his destination, that he would travel an additional two miles further southeast, bypassing Jerusalem, ultimately adding four travel miles to his trip so that he could be with these people that he loves going into the last week of his life. Now there's something beautiful about the humanity of Jesus that he knows he's going to die and he makes a choice to burden himself with an extended journey just so he could sit with people that he loved. Man, that is as human as it can get, right? John chapter 11 verse 5 says this. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so he comes back to Bethany. Now he didn't have to come back to Bethany, but he chooses to come back to Bethany. As a matter of fact, he comes back to Bethany. He leaves one day early, understanding the travel time from Ephraim to Jerusalem would have been one day. He leaves one day earlier just so he could go there. As a matter of fact, he only stays in Bethany one day. Then he sets his feet back off to the mission. And this is what it says. It says, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. <laughs> we'll get to that. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, I want you to get what's happening here. Jesus arrives in Bethany, and they're throwing a dinner, almost like a celebration. I'm sure it's a celebration uh, in response to what Jesus has done regarding Lazarus. Now, this had just taken place roughly around three weeks uh, earlier. And so Jesus comes back in Bethany. This may have been the first time for them to say, thank you. So they have this huge dinner. Now, I want you to put yourself in that room, in that dinner. I like to call this the second to the last supper, Right? They're all together right here, right? And they're in Bethany. And, and I want you to imagine what's happening. Now, Jesus knows what's coming. And so sitting at this table in this house, you have the 12 disciples, right? We know this to be the case. Other references to a similar story tells this, possibly the exact same story. The agent, right? 
of betrayal is there in Judas Iscariot? The agent of denial is there in Peter? And then each of the sheep that would be scattered once the shepherd was struck down are there? And there is Lazarus, whom Jesus loved. There is Mary, there is Martha, and they're throwing this celebration. You can understand how everyone else could be really, really excited that they would be sitting at this place with the Master. And then there's Jesus. There's Jesus. Who I can't help but, but to believe there's a vexing in his heart because he knows what's coming. Yet he pushes through to the benefit or for the benefit of those gathered to celebrate him. Now, if you're a mother or a father, you completely understand what I'm saying. You guys as parents have been in situations where schedule would dictate it's a time of celebration, right? Whether it be Thanksgiving or whether it be Christmas. And, and it, but, but unbeknownst to your children, there's a heavy crisis taking place in your life or the life of the family. You ever been there where it's a time or a season to celebrate, but in the backdrop, man, there's a crisis taking place that has your heart in a, in a vice, you know what I'm talking about, mom and dad? But then you look at your children and you just push through. You put the smile on your face. And for their benefit, for that moment, you just push through the anguish that is in your heart. I believe this is similar to what may very well be taking place right here. How could it not be? Imagine that. Here dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Now what I want you to see in this scripture is what takes place in the lives of a few people. Because we're going to have a look at some of these people briefly and we're going to watch this transition take place. And the hinge experience, the changing experience is an encounter with Jesus that is supernatural. That is life changing. And it affects them in a manner that completely and utterly changes them. And the scripture clearly paints this out. For example, right here in verse 2 it says, Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor, and Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. You say, what's the important thing about Martha serving? Why is that so important? Why does that, why does that demonstrate a significant change, uh, an experience with Jesus' power? Why do, why, why, how do you get that out of, out of this, Trent? In Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 42 says this, speaking of Martha. In a, this is when Jesus first encounters them in Bethany. He said, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him with an accusatory type uh, statement and says, Lord, don't we do this? Don't you care? Don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now, every child in here, especially if you have younger siblings and your parents have told you, 
clean up the house, and then you got that younger sibling. That's a slacker. You know what I'm talking about? Taylor knows. Taylor knows what I'm talking about. I'll not mention the slacker's name, Clark. And you know how that, that old mom, dad, you, I'm cleaning. But that slacker of a son or daughter of yours isn't helping. Tell her or him to help me. You can understand this, right? And that's exactly what Martha is doing. But she challenges Jesus' love for her in making such a... Do you not even care? Which is a ridiculous statement, isn't it? But what the scripture says is that she becomes distracted in her service, right? The thing that was in her heart to do, she becomes distracted... And oftentimes in our lives, whatever God has called us to do, brothers and sisters, we find and experience a level of discontentment because we become distracted in the service of what God has called us to. To the degree, right, to the degree that our distraction is born out of what? Out of fixing our eyes on what other people aren't doing instead of walking in the faithfulness of what we are called to do. And when we start comparing ourselves to other people and we start looking at other people and we end up saying, what about what they're not doing? Then it just births uh, in us this discontentment in service. Each and every one of us will wrestle with this. And it'll become a very difficult road to hoe of faith if our eyes are constantly looking at what others aren't doing as opposed to finding contentment in what I'm called to do. And listen, if I'm doing what God has called me to do, I'm not going to have a whole lot of time to fix my eyes on the failures or the deficiencies of other people. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say if you're identifying at a, at a, at a heavy level the deficiencies and the lack of productivity in other people's lives, it's probably because you have taken your eyes off of the fixed calling that God has placed on you. I, I tell people all, all the time, I said, man, I'm too busy uh, keeping myself uh, reasonably close to God, much less having to manage other people. You know, I've got to, I mean, I've got to lock in, Craig. And I know in my own heart, when I begin to identify in other people in their defense, I know what's happening in me. I have failed to lock in. I have failed to understand what God has called Trent to do. And I'm worried more about what Angie's doing, what Kevin's doing, or Greg's doing. So what is the change? What happens? You, you said all this. What this is the change. This is the demonstration. And it's short and it's sweet. And it says this. Martha served. Martha served. Martha wasn't worried about what Mary was doing. She wasn't worried about the fact that Lazarus was still sitting reclining at the table. The scripture just says that Martha served. And I think at that moment Martha understood her role in, in the worship in this given experience was in her service. Her worship looks completely different than other people's worship. Her worship was done through her hands and her feet and her doing. That was her worship. That's what Romans 12 talks about. In view of God's mercy, present your bodies and living sacrifice, holy and acceptable one to God. This is your reasonable service or your spiritual act of worship. Living this thing out, expressing it. 
And Martha just served. And I believe in this moment, having experienced the reality of Jesus proclaiming to her that he is the resurrection, seeing what Jesus did, understanding the, the, the scope of it all, it completely resolved in her heart the conflict to be concerned about the lack of doing in her sister's life, and she concentrated on the worship and serving. And nothing else is, is needed to be said of Martha. She just served. More is said about Martha in what isn't said, and that is the lack of complaining about others. And then let's look at verse 3 here. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now listen, this ain't the first time Mary's been at the feet of Jesus. This ain't the first time. But Mary's been changed too. I alluded to that last week. As a matter of fact, if we go into Luke chapter 10, verse 39, this is what the scripture says about Mary. It says that she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Listening. Just listening. Just listening. At his feet. And then in John chapter 11, Mary shows up again. It says when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Again, she's at these same feet. Right? The same feet. And you know what she says now at these feet with an accusatory nature to her statement? She says to Jesus, unlike her sister Martha, she says to Jesus this, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. No ands, ifs, or buts about it. As a matter of fact, I said this last week, I'll say it again for clarity. Jesus responds in that moment. And it's, this is what the scripture says. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and, and troubled. Embrymiome in the Greek. And it means anger born out of the notion of coercion. Literally meaning Jesus' response to them was one of displeasure. Now, I would like to kind of lay the blame across the board and say, well, Jesus may have been uh, had a level of displeasure with Mary and her response, the accusatory nature of her response, or it could have been the fact that all these Jews who had come from Jerusalem, these mourners, maybe Jesus was pushing back on them. But the reality is that Mary loved Jesus, and Jesus loved Mary. The others were strangers. Why would Jesus uh, have a hostile response to complete strangers who don't really know him like she does. So we, we, see, we see Mary listening at his feet. We see Mary complaining at his feet. And then there's the miracle. There's the power. There's the influence. Right? The resurrection of Lazarus. And so things change. Things shift. And then all of a sudden... All of a sudden, the scripture says that Mary took a pint of pure nard. Man, this is, this is expensive. Judas Iscariot uh, uh, references it later, said it's a, a year's worth of income to, to produce or to, or, or to purchase this. Roughly around $35,000 worth of value. And now she's not just, she's not complaining. She's not just listening. Man, now these feet are a place where she can posture her heart to worship him. 
And all of a sudden, these same feet that were listening feet, complaining feet, become worshiping feet. Oh, how beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news and glad tidings, right? Oh, I wonder if that's what Mary saw at that moment when she knelt down and saw those feet up close with a changed heart and a changed mind. Born out of this experience with Jesus. Oh, how those feet must have looked different. Oh, how sweet. How beautiful. And so she takes this $35,000 worth of, 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 of pure nard, she takes it and she pours it upon his feet. She's kneeling there, she loosens her hair. She just begins to wipe his feet. Completely and utterly socially unacceptable. And I'm sure in that moment, everyone sitting there, every one of the disciples were uncomfortable. You ever been uncomfortable in the midst of someone else's worship? You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about. Kellen over here yelling. You know what I'm talking You're sitting over, you don't come from some little Baptist church where people don't yell. All of a sudden you got this guy over screaming, you're jumping out of your skin. You're like, great googly moogly. Somebody medicate him. Right? You know, sometimes we, we know, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes other people's worship just make you uncomfortable. You know what I mean? And a lot of times it's because there's a, there's a level of freedom expressed in their lives that you have not yet ascertained. And you, there's a, there's, if you're not careful, there's some, some resentment that can rise up in you and push back on it. And that's what happens right here. That's what happens right here. That's what the scripture says. But, right there it says, she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary's worship of Jesus completely changed the atmosphere. I mean, the house was filled. Listen, uh, uh, my thermostat was acting up the other day, and and I've shared something similar to this uh, with you guys. And so I called uh, uh, the, the residing HVAC expert here at the church, one Billy Stitt, expert HVAC man. And I called him, I said, Billy, this is the situation I've got. Drop everything you have and get over here and fix it. <laughs> no, 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 it's not. I said, please, Billy, rescue my wife from these cold temperatures. It wasn't that either. I said, brother, if you, he said, I'll take care of it. He said, but this is what you're going to need, Trent. You're going to need to get a new thermostat, and we're going to have to get like a zone, a thermometer to place in one of the other rooms so you get a better reading on your thermostat. So he comes over there and he, and he, and he uh, installs this new thermostat. And then we spend a few minutes setting this new uh, 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 sensor, which is nothing more than a thermometer. And we put it in the other room. And that zone sensor senses the temperature in that room and sends it back to the thermostat. And the thermostat is reading the temperature in that room, not where the thermostat is sitting or hanging. But the sensor that is sending the temperature has no effect upon the temperature. The thermostat dictates the temperature in the house. The sensor just reads it, right? You tracking with me? We are either going to be, listen to me, thermometers that respond to the conditions around us, or we're going to be thermostats that establish and set the conditions around us. Mary was a thermostat. She poured out her worship. She she lavished Jesus 
with an extravagant expression and it filled the house. The perfume, the smell filled the house. She changed the atmosphere. You and I have a choice to be one or the other. We leave here today making that decision. What are you? When you go into work, you go into to school, you go into your home, are you affecting that or are you allowing it to affect? Are you just reading what's on, reading the room and expressing the temperature? Or are you affecting the change in the temperature? Mary was one who had a great cause to herself chose to change the atmosphere through her worship. Born out of this incredible display of Jesus in his previous trip to Bethany. And then there's this crazy response, right? And we get this, man. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, shocker, right? Shocker. Who was later to betray him, objected. Mm. There will always be people who object to your worship. You know this, right? Listen, when you go into those places and you want to change the atmosphere and you start to establish boundaries and you start to establish things that I don't do this or I do do this or there's certain things, man, you're trying to define who you are in Jesus in whatever arena you find yourself in, you're going to get some pushback. You're going to get some pushback. You're going to get some objections. There are many times, man, and Jeff knows this to be true, there are times, man, uh, I'd be sharing, I'd be there at Akabono, I was there for 25 years. I'd be working on some of those lines, whether it be in Glasgow or whether it be in E-Town. I'd be sharing the gospel. And, and I, there were times, man, that I'd get a little pushback, and then I might have a, a supervisor or somebody come over to me and say, Hey, Trent, you know, you need to tone that down a little bit. I'm like, okay. Then I turn, no I, no, I got some pushback. And we're going to get some pushback. You're going to get some pushback. He objected. And this is what he said. This was his pushback. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. You know what he was saying? I get worshiping Jesus. But man, this is a little much. Come on, man. That's a little much. I understand. Jesus has his place. You know, hey, man, give him, give him his due, but man, don't get all carried away and crazy. This is ridiculous. You know what I mean? This is ridiculous. Hmm. But the people who object and the people who ridicule don't understand where the worship goes from. You know what I mean? Man, when you've been there, in that place, when you've needed God, you've needed deliverance, you've needed forgiveness, and God's reached into a dark place, man, he's pulled you out. Then people who haven't been there, and they see your lavish expression upon Jesus, they look at you and they ridicule that. They say, man, you, you, you're tripping. It's because they've not been that place. They've not experienced that type of deliverance. They've not been rescued like that. They haven't been afloat out there, man. 
in, you know, in the deepest of water where you could not get back to the shore. And Jesus swam through the deep water to retrieve you, to bring you back to the solid ground. They've not been in the deep water. They don't understand. And I would say to you, keep on loving him in a lavish fashion. Keep on loving him in an extravagant manner, regardless of what the pushback is. You know why? You know why? Because he's worth it. He's worth it. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, Jesus says this, right? He says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, right? You know what I'm talking about? The extravagance of your worship is born out of the posture of your heart, right? And then Jesus speaks up, right? He, he, he speaks up. Uh, 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 Judas goes on to say, or the scripture goes on to say regarding Judas's objections, the scripture says he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it, right? So we understand what his motivation was. It wasn't even pure. And he was just taking a shot at her worship from his own selfish posturing. Give that, what he was really saying was, you could have given this to the poor or you could have given it to me. That's what he said. And you know what Jesus says? Jesus pushed back on, pushed back, he pushed back on him. And that's what you and I need to rely upon. Regardless of the arena, the venue we find ourselves in where the pushback is taking place, we need to trust that Jesus is ultimately going to fight for us. And this is what Jesus says, and it kind of speaks, or at least gives an insight into the vexing of the spirit of Jesus. Because he doesn't sit Judas down. As a matter of fact, when you read some of the other accounts, it wasn't just Judas who was complaining. The other disciples were too. And they may have rallied around when Judas articulated it. The other disciples who may have been thinking may have jumped on board and said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then Jesus pushes back, and this is what Jesus says. And he's not coddling Judas. So you kind of get a sense of where Jesus is. And this is what he says, leave her alone. Now, this is a man who just spoke life into a dead man. His words have power. Can you imagine if you're Judas, if you're the rest of the guys, and maybe you're kind of shaking this thing out with Judas? You know, you're kind of, eh, with him. And then Jesus says, no, you can see it, right? Judas makes the statement. Peter and John kind of slide over here with Judas. And then Jesus looks at Judas and says, leave her alone. And Peter and John look. You can see that, right? And Jesus says, leave her alone. Listen, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. The same Mary that Jesus was somewhat angry with in Bethany just some three weeks earlier, her heart postured in a manner to worship him. Instead of rebuking her there, he comes to her defense. And when we uh, align ourselves with God, he will defend us. 
We can't be looking for God to align himself with us. We have to align ourselves with him. Leave her alone, he says. And then this, we're going to close right here. We're going to close. This is Easter. Let's close. Right. And then this is what the scripture says. Now this is kind of a weird reference. Because now we're going to talk about a man named Lazarus. We're closing. This is a man who never speaks a word in the Bible. He doesn't do anything. Nothing. He's not digging holes, digging wells. He's not a farmer. He's not a car. We don't know anything about this cat. Nothing. And then this is what the scripture says. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus. <laughs> they wanted to see this guy that Jesus had raised from the dead. People want to see a life lived well in Jesus under the power and the influence of Jesus. I'm telling you, there's something attractive about you when you allow the power of Jesus to pour through your life that people will come and watch that thing. They want to see. I remember one day, and Miss Angie knows this to be the case. Somebody came to the door. Remember that one day Angie knocked on the door uh, of the office. They wanted to know, because they knew me 20-some years ago, 25, 30 years ago. They wanted to know, is this the church Trent Evans is at? And I'm like, did they have a warrant? <laughs> you know, the statute of limitations. I need to know before I open the door. And I opened that door, that guy walked in. It wasn't me that he wanted to see. He just wanted to see whether or not the validity of the influence of the power of Jesus was being expressed in the life of a broken person that he once knew. Not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Listen. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Listen, we, we live in a time, man. I, I'm just going to be I'm just going to be clear with you. We live in a time in a culture where there's never been a level of hostility towards the gospel as it is today. To the extent that I see churches left and right, man, falling into this progressive theology to be embraced by a culture because they don't want to take a stance on a given position to honor the word of God. Because there's something in them there's something in them, and I'm just being clean with you. Just coming clean. There's something in them that wants the acceptance of this world. That wants the friendship of this world. But you know, you know, if you're really being honest, and man, this is a difficult, especially if you're a man pleaser. If you're a people pleaser, man, this is some hard theology. This is some hard theology. But the reality is if we are walking in Jesus, if you think the world is going to come crawling to you to befriend you, man, you're out of your mind, man. I'm just being honest. Jesus said it so eloquently himself. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it first hated me. His own people rejected him, hung him on a cross. 
you're not going to be the most popular. And can I convince you to go ahead and give up the notion of being accepted by everyone? It's not going to happen. And ultimately, at the end of this thing, there's only one person that we need to be accepted by. And if the words of Jesus alienate me from the populace that I find myself surrounded in, then so be it. It has to be that way. Does that mean we're ugly? Does that mean we're hateful? Does that mean we're angry? We're bitter? No. We can be compassionate. We can be loving. But it must be cloaked in truth, covered in truth. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. This is closing, right? This that statement right there. I had said earlier that Lazarus doesn't say anything. We don't see Lazarus doing anything. But Lazarus is just being. He's being. He's a vessel, a conduit, a carrier of the power of Jesus and the expression of Jesus. He's not preaching with eloquent words, convincing arguments, apologetic positions and posturing. He's just living, literally just alive. And his life just living under the influence of the power of Jesus is so persuasive that the scripture says that many were coming to believe in Jesus. Not believe in Lazarus, but to believe in Jesus. Is that the experience that you and I are having? Is that the experience that you and I are having? That just living our lives out for Jesus is persuasive and convincing, moving people to decisions for Jesus, is that the life we're living? And if it is, then why? Why? I don't know what to say, Trent. You don't have to say anything. I don't know what to do. You don't have to just live. Just walk it out. Just be real. Let the Spirit just pour. His Word pour through you. Set up your spirit. Strengthen your spirit. Live this thing out. And people will be convinced because it's undeniable. It's undeniable. All of this happens. Ultimately, if you go back to John chapter 11, every bit of this happens, and Jesus says why it happens. He says to his disciples, this is what he said at the very beginning of this, Lazarus is dead, everything, and for your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Do you know why? And I alluded to this the very first week, but they're going into this crucifixion thing. And their Jesus is going to be dead for three days. Lazarus had been dead for four days. And Jesus demonstrated before his disciples the power of his reach to extend even into four days of death to recover a man from death. And they come back to Bethany. He loves them. 
But there's another reason that his disciples would sit around that table with Lazarus for one day, one evening. And they would watch Lazarus eat. They would watch Lazarus drink. And they would watch Lazarus live because he wanted to set in their hearts a convincing reality that I have power over the grave. And so in six days, when they nail me to that nasty cross that I lay myself on, and they bury me in that tomb for three days, don't lose hope. And when they're sitting there with Lazarus, do you think they didn't want to ask him what was on the other side? What was it like when your eyes closed for the last time? Could you really hear the master's voice in dead ears? What was it like when you felt the release of death, the grip of it upon you, and you were able to rise? What was that like? Jesus is dead in a matter of days, but you know who's not dead in a matter of days? Lazarus is. And I wonder how many times between that Friday and Sunday and the despair of losing Jesus that the disciples in their hearts said, man, I just need to go back to Bethany. Just give me a few minutes to run across this field, down this road. I just need to see Lazarus one more time because I need to be convinced that I have some hope. Right? You can imagine this. That's what I would have done. When hope was fainting, despair was setting up. Oh, I just need to see one more time. I just, if I could just sit and eat with him one more day, one more meal, maybe it would be enough for me to believe. But Jesus brought them there. That was their experience. And I believe it was done to secure in them hope and a faith to get them through those three long days. Oh, you think Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Oh, he did. But he loved his, his disciples, and he wanted to deposit in them something they could draw on in his absence. And I say to you today that Jesus loves you, he wants to change your life. He wants to effectively influence you in a manner that you too could become an agent, right? An agent to persuade, not through eloquency of speech, as the Apostle Paul said, but through a demonstration of the power of the Spirit. That's what Paul said, right? Yeah, that's what he said. Yeah. Happy Easter to the driven church. May the power of Easter be yours to be experienced and lived out in the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Stand with me this morning.